Well, before we get into the, the message this morning, I was reading from the book of Philippians this week, Philippians chapter 1. And as you know, Paul wrote the book of Philippians from prison. And this is what he said in verses, chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. And I thought it very relevant for our day. And he says this to the Philippians. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. His imprisonment had advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And here it is. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And I was thinking about that verse in the context of the churches in America. There are some pastors who are taking a hit. They are being threatened and oppressed, if I might add, uh, by the local governing authorities, by the state governing authorities. So I'd like to take some time this morning before we get into the sermon to pray for those churches and for those pastors. So let's pray. Father, we know that you have ordained persecution for believers. And Father, we in this country are facing an oppressive and unjust governing system where many authorities are seeking to keep churches closed. I think of several pastors in our state in particular, Rob McCoy in Thousand Oaks at Calvary Chapel Godspeak, Think of Jack Treber in Santa Clara at North Valley Baptist and also of John MacArthur in Sun Valley at Grace Community Church. I pray for them and also for many other pastors in this country who are being threatened with fines and imprisonment if they continue to hold services. I pray that you would grant them boldness and wisdom, that they would not fear man, but that they would fear you. And Father, may their example prompt us to more boldness, to speak Christ without fear. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin with several uh, maybe clarifications or, or statements to expand on several things that Micah and I have been speaking on the last several weeks. I was also thinking of Titus chapter 1, in addition to the book of Philippians. Titus chapter 1, verse 9, where Paul is speaking of the qualifications of an elder. The qualifications of an elder. And Paul says, The elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, so that's the positive side, but to also rebuke those who contradict it. And the, the book of Jude, Jude there says that he wanted to write of our glorious salvation, but he needed to refute those who were teaching false teachings in the church. And in a sense, that's what we are doing in this series. I, I would love nothing more than just to focus on Christ and him crucified, but the times do call for not just a positive exposition or explanation of the truth, but a refutation of error. 
Because scripture speaks to all of life. Amen? And Paul told the Ephesian elders that he did not shrink back from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. And we must also, from this church, declare the whole counsel of God. We have said repeatedly that biblical justice means fair treatment under the law. Social justice, as that term is used today, means, refers to equal outcomes and when there, is, when there are unequal outcomes, a forcible redistribution of means or a forcible alteration of outcomes in order to get to equal outcomes. And I think something that we need to discipline our minds to do when that assertion or that charge is made, when people say, hey, look, these are unequal outcomes in society today, therefore these institutions are inherently racist, what we must do is ask the question, well, if there are unequal outcomes, why are there unequal outcomes? What is the motivation that leads to those unequal outcomes? And certainly, some of those motivations may be based on prejudice or discrimination. But let us be critical thinkers, not lazy in our thinking, but ask the question, why? That being said, a biblical definition of justice does not mean that we do not care about outcomes. As Christians, we care deeply about outcomes, especially the eternal outcomes of the souls of mankind in this country. God cares about outcomes, both eternal outcomes and temporal or these physical outcomes in this world. We pray and we work for the flourishing of society, of every segment of society. But we understand that God is the Lord of all creation and humanity can only flourish in its truest sense if it seeks to carry out this life, if it seeks to obey God in every realm of society as he has dictated in his word. We cannot flourish apart from obedience to God's revealed revelation in his word. We also must say that when we deny critical race theory, it is not a denial that racism exists, either in this country or in the world. No, racism is there. But we fundamentally reject the definitions, diagnosis, and the cure that critical race theory offers because the Bible has superior solutions. And who is the ultimate solution? Christ. Christ. Last week, I, I cited Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, and I was just thinking of this this morning, that she is in the presence of her maker, is she not? She has met her maker. And she said that she desired to exterminate the black population with the formation, the founding of Planned Parenthood. I found a, a shocking statistic this week. 
In New York City, New York City, between the years of 2012 and 2016, of the children conceived to black mothers, 136,426 of them were aborted, were murdered in the womb. In that same time period in New York City, black mothers gave birth to 118,127 babies. There were approximately 20,000 more babies killed than born. Leftism, leftism, is no friend to the African-American community. It is not. We say, we affirm the statement that black lives matter. Every single one, those who are killed outside the womb and those who are killed inside the womb. And we pray for justice. Something else that is also troubling to me in all the discussions of of race and especially of our country's history with racism and slavery, something that is absent from those discussions is the doctrine of the providence of God. The providence of God. The doctrine of providence states that God has ordained every single event in human history both the good and the bad. And he works everything in human history for his glory and for the good of his people. I think of Joseph's words at the end of the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50. And you recall that Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery. And what was his statement to his brothers? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And the brothers were afraid that Joseph would be angry with them, that he would somehow punish them. But Joseph's attitude was that of grace and forgiveness. So let us remember the doctrine of the providence of God, that God is on his throne. He is in charge. This morning, we are going to be in one of the most glorious passages in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is going to point to what Christ has done, what Christ has accomplished to end ethnic conflict. Hostility, violence, murder, and oppression have plagued the human race since our fall. Cain murdered his own brother Abel out of jealousy and anger. Violence filled the earth prior to the flood. In fact, it was violence, the taking of human life, that prompted God to destroy this earth and begin it anew. So grievous was murder to God that he instituted the death penalty 
for the one who murders another human, another image bearer of God, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Violence, and in particular, ethnic violence, has plagued the human race even after the flood from the Tower of Babel. Some more modern examples include the Turkish genocide of the Armenian people in the early 1900s. In Rwanda in the 1990s, there was the genocide of the Tutsis and the Twas by the Hutus. And there was the Bosnian genocide of the 1990s. This is recent history. And we think in all of our sophistication in our modern world that we are somehow immune, but we are not. Modern man has been unable to, the United Nations has been unable to end ethnic conflict. When we look at these examples of ethnic hatred, we are horrified at the loss of human life. And perhaps even more horrific is the human heart from which stems all that violence. The human heart is desperately wicked. Desperately wicked. And many of the animosities between nations and ethnicities runs deep. These hostilities have been deepening through the centuries, through the millennia, and our own country is not immune. There is a sense in which these scars that run through our own country's history are plaguing us today. And this world is desperate for solutions. But the solutions of this world are failing. But what this world could not do and what this world cannot do, Christ did. Christ put an end to ethnic hostility. He killed it and he put it to death with his own death. So our text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 to 18. So let's first consider who wrote this. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. And the Apostle Paul, before he became an apostle, before he met Christ, was a proud Jew. Sinfully so. This is what Paul said in Philippians 3, verses 4 to 6, on the screen here. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now this phrase, a Hebrew of Hebrews, meant that there were Hebrews and then there were Hebrews, right? I mean, he was the cream of the crop. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul viewed himself as superior to both Gentiles, non-Jews, and other Jews that had sold out to Gentile culture. He was a keeper of the law. He was fastidious in his keeping of the law. Now, back in Paul's time, the Jews hated the Gentiles, and the Gentiles hated the Jews. 
Gentiles were unclean, uncircumcised, defiled, unholy, and far from God. And Jews were stuck up, arrogant, self-righteous Jews. (laughs) And you get a sense for the Jewish hatred of Gentiles when Paul was recounting his testimony to the Jews in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost. He's recounting his testimony. He tells them this. He said, Jesus said to me, and he was listening, they were listening to Paul up until this point, right? Jesus said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Christ commissioned Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And up to this word, the Jews listened to him, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Now, how far had the Jewish nation fallen? You remember in Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6, that the Jewish people were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, a blessing to the nations. And in that vein, God had commissioned Jonah to go to Nineveh to take the message of salvation through repentance to that wicked city. But the Jewish people of Jesus' time and of Paul's time had no room for Jonah's. They had no room for Paul's. They had no room for Jesus. The Jews wanted Paul dead. Now this would have been Paul's attitude as well before he came to Christ. But what changed in Paul's life? What changed? On the road to Damascus, Paul met Christ. That's what changed. What is the answer to racism? Christ. In that same section in the book of Philippians in chapter 3, Paul says, but whatever gain I had, whatever privilege I thought I had, whatever I thought I had that that elevated my status and my standing with God, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, "More, more than that, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the sake of suffer the loss of all things and count it as rubbish so that I might know Christ. And as you read Paul's letters, whether that be in the book of Galatians or Romans or Ephesians, Colossians, Paul is always confronting the pride of both the Jewish people and the Gentiles. They were both proud. The Jews looked down on the Gentiles. The Gentiles looked down on the Jews. And how did Paul addressed the pride of both groups. He pointed them to Christ. He pointed them to Christ and his cross. That Jews and Gentiles were to find their primary identity in Christ and that all their guilt was removed by Christ, that Christ had shown them grace, Christ had accepted them, so they they were in turn supposed to accept one another and show grace to one another. Christ is the answer, the only answer to racism. So let's read Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 17. 
And I want you, as we read through this passage, to be listening to how many times Paul refers to Christ. And Paul said this, and he's addressing Gentiles here, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Do you guys hear it? How many times Paul was pointing to Christ. And here's what I want us to see from this passage. Christ is our peace. Christ is our peace. And Paul is going to remind us of three truths, three realities that is going to drive home that wondrous reality that Christ is our peace. And the first reality, the first reminder is this. Number one, we must remember our plight before Christ. We must remember our plight before Christ. Now what's interesting in this passage is that there is only one command that Paul gives to Gentiles in this whole passage. One command. In verse 11 it is this. We must remember. We must remember. I kind of think of, uh, apart from all of the Terrible theological issues at play when Mufasa sees Simba. Remember, remember, right? Just think about that one word, remember, remember, right? So we must remember. We must remember. When there is disunity in the church between ethnicities, it is because we do not remember. We have forgotten. We have forgotten who we were apart from Christ. And Paul tells these Gentile believers, guys, time out. Before you came to Christ, remember who you were. You were alienated from God and from Israel. See, these Gentiles were beginning to grow in their disdain and their contempt for unbelieving Jews. And Paul's like, no, no, you guys were uncircumcised outside God's covenant community. Gentiles, it's you and me, predominantly, we did not have the temple. We did not have the covenants of promise. We did not have scripture. Now, I want to point out something here. 
Jews and Gentiles are separate. This separation, this distinction was a separation that God himself put in place. God separated Jews and Gentiles for the purpose of making or preserving Israel's holiness and distinction. They were to be separate from the nations. Why? So that they could be a blessing to the nations. And the Gentiles were on the outside looking in. Now what's interesting to me is that as Paul is writing to these Gentile believers in Ephesus, some of these believers in Ephesus were slaves. Ephesians 6, 5, slaves obey your earthly masters, Paul wrote. So there were slaves in the church at Ephesus. What is the greatest predicament of mankind? What is the greatest plight of slaves? Is it their slavery? No. What is worse than slavery? Chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, don't get me wrong. Slavery, oppression is horrific, horrendous. But Paul points them to a slavery, a, a horror that is even greater than slavery, and that is being separated from God and without hope in this world. We must remember as well that we were once all slaves of sin. We were once slaves of Satan doing what he desired us to do. We were enemies of God. We had violated his law and his wrath was against us. That's all of us. It doesn't matter what skin color we are, what nation we're from, whether one is slave or free, what job we have, what part of town we live in, whether we have position or power or preeminence or a lack of those things. It doesn't matter if you're Steve Jobs or Caesar Augustus. Apart from Christ, we are nothing. Nothing. All of us were without hope and without God in this world and we were headed for an eternity in hell. And this is where liberation theology, the social gospel, critical race theory, all fundamentally misdiagnose the greatest plight of mankind. That we had no hope and were without God and destined for hell because of our sins. So in light of that, how can anyone, how can anyone in the church view themselves as superior than anyone else. We can't. Apart from Christ, slave and master are on equal ground. Jew and Gentile are on equal ground. Americans and Arabs are on equal ground. Blacks and whites are on equal ground. So when we remember who we were apart from Christ, we are humbled. And humility gives birth to peace. Peace in the church comes from the soil of humility. 
So first, let us remember our plight apart from Christ. Second, we must remember our blood-bought peace. Let us remember our blood-bought peace from verses 13 to 15. Now, God did not just reconcile us vertically to him. He reconciled us horizontally to one another. In verses 13 to 15, Paul shows us how Jew and Gentile, by extension, believers of all ethnicities, have been brought together and are made one. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now we need to know, we need to be reminded of the price that was paid to reconcile us, to bring us to God, and to reconcile us to one another. And what was that price? The blood of Christ. And now this is where, again, the discussion of reparations is so wrong-headed because payment for peace in the church has already been paid. Christ has paid that price with his own blood. It's been paid. It's been paid in full, and therefore we have peace and love with one another. Was the blood of Christ powerful enough to save us from our sins, from eternity in hell? Amen and amen. Was his blood powerful enough to bring peace in the church between people who hated one another, who are different from one another? Amen and amen. The blood that brought us to God brings us together. That's why this concept of children inheriting the the guilt of their fathers is so wrong. Because in Christ, through his blood, we are forgiven. All of our sins are forgiven. Our sins, past, present, and future. And we are accepted by God, and we must accept one another. There is is so much guilt in this system of critical race theory. I was listening listening last night to a clip from a pastor, a well-known pastor, who was citing one of his preacher friends who was espousing this concept of white guilt in America. And he was relaying the story of someone who heard in that congregation the pastor teaching about white guilt in America. And one of his congregants came to him and said, wait, wait, no, pastor, you're, you're mistaken. I, I just immigrated here from Norway. I don't know what you're talking about. And the pastor said to him, brother, there is guilt, essentially, that you have for which you are unaware. Where's the gospel in that? Where's Christ in that? Where is the message of grace in a statement like that? That people are guilty, not because of anything they have done, but by virtue of the mere color of their skin that is unbiblical, and in accord with Titus chapter 1, we must refute teachings like that. There is so much guilt 
in that worldview. But in Christ, there is so much grace. Verse 14, for he himself, that is Christ, is our peace. He himself is our peace. Not just what he's done brings us peace, but Christ himself is our peace. And you notice, you notice this is a statement, an indicative statement. Paul doesn't say, make Christ your peace. He says, no, Christ is, is unchangingly our peace. When a church fractures along ethnic lines, the church has forgotten Christ. When people try to stir up ethnic division and hostility in the church where there is none, they set themselves in direct opposition to the head of the church, Christ, the Prince of Peace. And we need to live in the fullness of Christ and the peace that he is and the peace that he gives us. The church that pursues Christ, that treasures Christ, and knows him and, and follows him and declares that Christ is our life, that church will know peace. And that's what we have, Foothill Bible Church. That's what we have that the world does not have. The world has no peace because they do not have Christ. So all of this trying to band-aid the solution or the, the problems of this world in a sense, is futile because the world needs Christ. Now, peace is not just the absence of conflict, and granted, some nations can know the absence of conflict at some level. Biblical peace is not just the absence of conflict, but the warm embrace that we give to one another because we are at peace with God and He has embraced us. That's why the world can never know peace, shalom, in the, in the fullest sense of that word. Now let's see how Christ brought peace between Jew and Gentile. Verse 14, he himself is our peace who has made us both Jew and Gentile one. He has made us both one. These two ancient people groups that God had separated, God has now made one. And Jesus did so by breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now the law separated Jew and Gentile in the worship of God. Now there's a great demonstration of this. So if I can get the first picture here. We were just in Israel, so hopefully you can see this. There's uh, in Jerusalem at one of the museums, the, the primary museum in Jerusalem, a picture of or a, a replica of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem in the time of Christ. And it's very small, so there's the, the courtyard, there's the walls of the temple precincts, and then there's the courtyard in within those big walls, and then there's the temple in the very middle, and just outside the temple precinct, there are small, almost like headstones, almost the size of of tombstones, if I, or, you know, those stones that are on top of tombs. In Jesus' time, in Paul's time, the temple had a small wall, a small wall with a bunch of small stones with this inscription on each of the stones. The next picture. Yeah, so we were in the, the museum there in Jerusalem, and there was the stone, at least the, a remnant of the stone. 
and pass within the lattice and wall around the sanctuary. Those are the, those are the small own will be his own. Gentiles who pass that wall will be killed and that Gentile will be guilty of his own death. Now Paul may have had in mind that the dividing wall that separated the Gentiles from the Jews in the worship of God at the temple in first century Jerusalem. That could have been in Paul's mind. But certainly, what was in mind in this text was the law that separated Jew and Gentile. And Paul says that when Christ died, the law also died. Jews were no longer under the law, but under the law of Christ. The law that separated Jew and Gentile was abolished. And when Christ abolished the law, the Mosaic law, he abolished the hostility between believing Jews and Gentiles. I have a, a pastor friend in Georgia, and he, I was listening to one of his sermons about a month ago on this passage, and he says, in the words of Ronald Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, break down this wall. Christ has broken down the greatest wall that could ever separate anyone in the church, and in so doing, we have peace. And we must be, as my friend says, a church without walls. That anything that would divide us must go away. Because Christ himself has broken down the greatest wall, the law. Now, will there be cultural differences in the church? Of course. Should there be cultural barriers in the church? Never. And this is, this is why CRT and any other ideology that seeks to inflame hostility, division, and enmity between believers of different ethnic backgrounds is so wrong. Because Christ has killed the hostility between Jew and Gentile and by extension between all believing people of every single ethnicity. And this doesn't just apply to ethnic hostilities. This should apply to all cultural preferences such as musical differences, food, you name them, right? There are so many cultural differences. Now some, I'm reminded when when we've done premarital counseling in the church here, we, we say, I've heard it said, that every single marriage is cross-cultural. Some marriages are more cross physically cross-cultural than others, right? And it might appear that they're more cross-cultural than others. But every single marriage is cross-cultural. Because every single marriage has someone who came from one family background and someone who came from another with different traditions and practices and upbringings. And personally, that's why I think this concept of somehow this, this white culture is so wrong-headed, as if white culture is monolithic or universal or homogenous. And we know that's not true. Thinking of the, of the reality here in this section, that Christ has put an end to ethnic Hostilities. One of the most memorable experiences that I had growing up, my, my brother and I were going to a Boy Scout camp with 
one of my friends, and his mom was driving us to that camp. It's a church-going family. We came to a red light, and my friend's mom stopped the car. She turned around, and she told my brother and me, she says, listen, whatever you do, you cannot marry a non-Korean. You cannot. Especially not, especially not a Japanese girl. Now, if you know anything about Korean history in the 1900s, there is deep enmity, deep hostility between the Japanese and the Koreans. And I would say, in response, if I, if I was a believer at that time, I would have pointed her to Ephesians 2. I said, how can we have those kinds of barriers, those kinds of walls, those kinds of hostilities, if Ephesians 2 is true? That Christ has put to death all hostility. We cannot. We cannot. Because Christ has taken down the wall between Jew and Gentile. And may we never erect another wall in its place. Now, Christ didn't just abolish the law. He didn't just kill the hostility. He participated. He did an act of recreation. In verse 15, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create. So you see, he, he killed one thing and he created something else. He might create in himself one new man, one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace. Now this was an act of recreation. We used to be in Adam. We used to be either Jew or Gentile. But now in Christ, we are one new man. We are not now primarily Jew or Gentile, but part of the body of Christ. We are in union with Christ. Now that doesn't mean we cease to be either Jew or Gentile or part of any other ethnic background. But our primary identity is in Christ. Now think of the person in this church, in this church, who is the most unlike you. The one who has totally different hobbies, food tastes, music preferences, you name it. The one who looks the most unlike you, whose upbringing was totally unlike yours. Paul says in this passage, in verse 15, that you are one with that person in Christ. You are one with that person in this body. You have more in common with that person who is so unlike you than someone who has the same shared interests, etc. The same person who looks like you. Why? Because you both have Christ. And is not Christ more important than anything else in this world? That Christ brings us together more than anything else. Christ's righteousness is ours. His inheritance is ours. His home that he is preparing right now is ours. His character is ours. You see, on the surface, we might look more like someone else outside the church than in this church. But we had better, in terms of our character, look more like one another in this church than someone on the outside. 
That is why it is so deeply troubling and wrong that churches and Christian organizations intentionally, intentionally divide on the basis of color or ethnicity. There are churches that do so, that, that separate, if I might use that word, because of language. I think that's a separate issue. But for a church to say we are an Asian church or a black church or a white church or a Hispanic church, to do so is in fundamental conflict with this passage because Paul says that we are one body in Christ. Christ did not establish the Jewish church of Jerusalem, right? And the Gentile church of Ephesus. No, Jews and Gentiles were to come together in one body. Now, I understand that a church might happen to have members who are of one predominant ethnicity, but if there is the intention to exclude others on the basis of ethnicity, then the church is in violation of Christ's intention for his bride. Because the church should always want to preach the gospel to those, to people from every tribe and tongue and language, people group, and when they believe, they are accepted into the body as one of our own. Now this world artificially, and if I might add feverishly and desperately, attempts to manufacture superficial diversity, right? Diversity in terms of skin color. Not diversity in terms of ideology, but diversity in terms of skin color. They're desperate for it. Christ came to do what no affirmative action program can do. Christ came to do and accomplished what tokenism cannot do. Because Christ redeemed people from every tribe, every people group, every skin color. And the church displays to the world God's intention for mankind that we are brought together as one by the blood of Christ. And the world wonders, how do you get that? How do you get that? I was uh, listening to something, uh, I actually heard John MacArthur say, I think it was back in like the 80s or the 90s, uh, one of the local seminaries here wanted to do a study on his church because the church, Grace Community Church, was so diverse. It's like, how do you get that? And he's like, well, we just preach the Bible, right? And we love people wherever they came from, and we just preach the Bible, and we love them. I heard something interesting about the, the live streams that Grace Community Church is doing now, and you know, they, the camera goes to the audience, and the comment was made, man, their church is so diverse. Well, yeah, because the church of Jesus Christ, if it is being reformed by Scripture, should be diverse, right? It should be. So the world wonders, how do you get that? And we say, you cannot have the fruit without the root. You cannot have the effect without the cause. If you don't have Christ, you can't have true diversity. Your diversity programs, in a sense, are useless. And may the Lord grant me such boldness to say that, and if I have ever presented with that opportunity, right? <laughs> But apart from Christ, he's the one who brings us together, right? 
So three things, three things that we need to be reminded of. We must remember our plight apart from Christ. We must remember our blood-bought peace. And third and finally, we must remember our equal standing in Christ, verses 16 to 17. Now our greatest problem was not our conflict with one another, but our enmity with God. Our enmity with God, verse 16. Christ reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We needed to be reconciled not primarily to one another, but to our maker, to our maker. And Jesus came, he came, verse 17, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In Christ, both Jew and Gentile, slave and master, believers from every nation have equal access and an equal standing before God. In Christ, the Spirit brings us to the Father. And if I might add, the the unity that we experience in our body is a Trinitarian unity. It is a unity grounded in the person of God. God who is three persons and one God, three persons in one God, in perfect love and harmony, enjoying fellowship. And Paul says, Jew and Gentile, two people groups have been made one with Christ-like love and peace and fellowship. Our unity is Trinitarian. In Christ, the Spirit brings us to the Father, which means that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, the the gospel, this, this message, verse 18, that we all have access to one Father, no matter our background, undermines the very foundation of slavery, that one class of people is superior to another. Because in Christ, we are brothers. The Apostle Paul, when he went to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to slave-owning societies and cultures, his main mission was not the abolition of slavery. It was the preaching of the gospel. But in the gospel, message itself was a truth that dismantled the very foundation of slavery. And we see this in Paul's letter to Philemon. I would encourage you sometime this week to read the letter to Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner. One of his slaves, Onesimus, had run away from him and gone to Paul in Rome. Paul shared the gospel, preached Christ to Onesimus. Onesimus believed and Paul sent him back to his master, Philemon. And Paul sent these words, wrote these words to Philemon. In Philemon, verses 15 to 16. For this perhaps, and I love this, right? The providence of God, right? Paul was thinking about the providence of God. This perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. I think Paul is thinking of eternity here. No longer as a bondservant, slave, 
but more than a slave. As what? A beloved brother. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but Philemon, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Philemon, you, you were his master, right? He was your slave. You have him back as a brother. Treat him, love him as a brother in Christ. And you see how that truth, that truth undermines, it destroys the very foundation of slavery. The slave was now the beloved brother of the master. And what raises the slave to have that kind of dignity and what what brings the master down to be What humbles the master to be on the same level as his slave? And it is this truth. In Christ, the slave and the master have equal standing before God. They are equals. Let me just say this. In our country's history, those slaves who were believers were far richer unfathomably and infinitely richer than their unbelieving masters. Ephesians 1, that God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's the truth. That's the truth that no one's talking about. That we don't just think about this life. We think about the life to come. And how do we remind ourselves of the life to come, of our equal standing in Christ? Well, we remind ourselves of Christ. That we are in Christ. He is our righteousness, our life, and our peace. And in him we are one. This is the answer to racism, the only answer, that Christ is our peace. Now let me finish with some pointed and and helpful application for us This morning, I pray that Foothill Bible Church may reflect God's intention for mankind and for the church. We must not just say that we are one in Christ, we must live out that oneness. So how can we do that? First, let us seek to proactively love and build friendships with people who are different from us. So we might not struggle with ethnic pride, but whom do you struggle to love? Say you don't have anything in common with them. You meet them in the the lobby or outside and it's like crickets, right? It's like, what do we talk about? I don't know. Talk about Christ. Have them share their testimony. Talk about the thing that is the most important to you. Talk about Christ. And that will bind your hearts together. Second, Young people, let me speak to you here. I want to encourage you. I want to to exhort you to get to know the seniors in our church. And one of the things I love about this church is that we have people from all age groups, right? The young energize the old. The old impart wisdom to the young. I love that. Some churches, either they lean to one spectrum, But I love the diversity in age in this church. 
old people, I love hearing your stories. I've gotten to go to the senior breakfast the last couple times and, and just to sit down and hear your stories has been so encouraging, such a blessing to me. So young people, get to know our seniors. And seniors, I would encourage you to impart your wisdom to our youth because God knows that we are in desperate need of it. Third, invite to your home people from all walks of life. Now, when I came first to Foothill, 2008, man, it was a culture shock. It was a culture shock. I grew up in a Korean church, and my main friends in high school were Korean-American, and it was a culture shock. It was hard. But what helped me was when others invited me into their homes and their lives, and I was like, man, these people love what I love. They love Christ, and they, in Christ, love me. And we are part of a family that supersedes and is more important than any kind of superficial marker, right? That we are family. Number four, at times we must learn to and let us sacrifice our own preferences and value the preferences of others. And we've been talking about, a lot about preference here, and Paul has a lot to say about preferences, right? That we hold our own preferences near and dear, and we should. But let us, at times, sacrifice our preferences and value the preferences of others. Now, we might not appreciate those preferences to the same degree, but let us appreciate them and value them because we love the people who value them. Beloved, Christ is our peace. Amen? He has killed the hostility. Let us not resurrect what he has killed. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, our hearts full of praise, our hearts full of rejoicing because of what Christ has done. He has done what no mere man can do. He has put to death all ethnic hostility. So let us rejoice in the work of Christ. Let us live in the work of Christ, in his death and his resurrection. Let us live out who we are in Christ. For we are a new humanity called out from this world to be in Christ. Father, give us wisdom. Let us speak Christ's name to a world who so desperately needs him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Beloved, go in peace for Christ is our peace.